So welcome to Elevenses with me, Danielle Perry, a podcast where I invite handpicked guests to share a drink with me in the mid-morning, a chance to put the smartphones down and indulge in a long conversation. Now, the crux of this podcast is that I ask each guest the same 11 questions. Now, today, I am joined by lead singer of multi-million selling rock band Skunk Anansi, solo artist, LGBTQ plus activist, and all-round trailblazer, a global icon, also a fashion icon, a renowned DJ, an actress and an activist. And as well as uh, fronting one of the UK's most successful underground bands, she is a multi-talented artist and is currently producing solo techno music and uh, is about to have her latest book published, It Takes Blood and Guts, comes out at the end of this month, being September 2020. If that didn't give it away already, I am delighted to welcome Skin to Elevenses. How are you doing? I'm good, actually. I'm very good this morning. I had a nice active morning. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I'm happy. Good, good, good. How, how's lockdown been for you? Are you missing the roads? Is it, you know, sort of just aching to get back into the live arena and playing sets and clubs and everything? Well, you know, it's, it's, I'm one of these people, I do so many different things. I mean, I literally haven't been bored since I was about 12. You know? <laughs> so my issue is I never have enough time. So... The, the, the silver lining, if there was one, was it gave me a chance to get into some things that I haven't really gotten into and didn't have time to do, you know, because sometimes you need deep, thorough thought time. But, um, yeah, I was I was in New York with my other half, a lady, and it got, it's really easy, actually. We were, we were great together. But after a while, it just got a bit kind of like trying to be inside for such a long period of time. But, you know, I, I'm kind of one of the people who's like, you know, I didn't have to, you know, go down the trenches. <laughs> so all I had to do is stay inside and stay on my sofa and do some work. So I also I just think um, being a touring musician, we're kind of set up to do a lot of touring and then big breaks in between. So I'm kind of set up to, to work really hard and then have a year and a half off and then work really hard and then a year and a half off. So it's not that unusual for me. Um, I'm much more worried about the kind of the, the greater impact that it's going to have on us. But yeah, so my lockdown has been quite interesting and quite fruitful and uh, kind of fun and relaxing. I mean, that's, that's when we finished the book. So I actually got a lot done. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I was reading the book last night and I love the way that, that you've written it. And it's we're going to obviously cover this uh, today because there's lots of memories we're going to talk about as well. Um, it takes blood and guts. It comes out at the end of this month. Have you have you held the finished copy in your hand? How did that feel? I held a f- near, not the finished one, but the actual book. I held that. I did the audiobook recording a few weeks ago and that was the first time um, I kind of held it in my hands because Lucy, who I wrote the book with uh, Lucy O'Brien, my friend and, uh, and well now journalist, and she came in with a copy. It's like, where'd you get that from? Where'd you get that from? I haven't had one of those. What's going on? So that was, and she took it with her. So I still don't have a copy. I keep signing pieces of paper that are going to be wrapped around the book. So the actual book I haven't seen yet. Oh, lovely. We're going to sort of weave it in now to our first question, if that's all right. Because the first one I always start with with guests is if we can go back to your first memory. And when I was reading the first couple of chapters, um, I mean, vivid memories of your childhood in Brixton coming through in your writing. It, it sounded like such an interesting and um, sort of colourful and it just seems so vivid in your memory and your writing. What's your first memory from that time? I think my first memory is sitting at the top of the stairs 
watching people dancing. Because if you imagine my granddad's club, which was this, um, it's called the Essa Residential Club, and it was in the basement of the house. And so you, you had, it had a separate entrance at the front, perfect for, for kind of after hours or normal hours club. And so my first members are sitting at the top of the stairs with my brother. And I'm pretty sure from the way that people were dancing that it was ska music that we're dancing to. You know, the fists were in the air. There was a little hop in the shoulders, a little skip. So yeah, yeah, for me, yeah. that means like that means like ska music. So, yeah, I think that's my first memory. With your granddad's club, when I was reading about that last night, I mean, some incredible characters came through those doors, didn't they, throughout your childhood? Yeah, yeah. I've seen pictures of Cassius Clay before he was Muhammad Ali. Um, Bob Marley used to come, go there. Peter Tosh, a lot of reggae stars, a lot of Jamaicans. And um, Norman Manley, who was uh, Prime Minister, who my granddad was voting for. And I remember him, my mum remembers him actually and says that, yeah, he was saying, oh, after you guys have been to England and make some money, you have to go back to Jamaica. You have to go back to Jamaica when you're done. Uh, you build up the country, you know. It's like the youth has left, but the youth has to come back to help out. It was his message. So I don't remember any of those guys. I just seen pictures of them when I was young. I do remember, I think it might have been Peter Tosh, but I do remember like dancing and I was, there was a big guy with dreadlocks and I was holding on to his hands and he was swinging me from side to side. I, I, is it Peter Tosh or Bob Marley, one of those guys, I'm not sure which one. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. And uh, the thing also uh, around that sort of setting that I was thinking about from reading your book um, was it was such an important focus point for the community as well, wasn't it? Uh, for the Irish community as well. And, and it really kind of cemented an importance of your time in Brixton. And your, your granddad's club was so important for that, for the community there. Exactly, because, you know, in those days, if you were a black male or a few black women, you know, you weren't getting into the clubs in London. They would just stop you at the door. I mean, in some clubs in London, they still stop black guys at the door coming from getting in. So, and it so basically, also, you know, it wasn't the kind of music and the kind of atmosphere they wanted to, to be in. They wanted to be around Jamaicans and black music and black people and black culture. So these are loads of them all dotted around South London and all over London. Um, I've got a friend of mine who had a very famous um, bar and but club that was like more like a shabine. People could relax and have some memories and have some friends and kind of build relationships and get support as well. Because, you know, when I was a kid, everybody was called uncle and auntie. And I actually thought I had 20 uncles and 20 aunties. And it was only literally when I got to 19, when I was a fully grown, I realised, oh, that's not my real auntie. I think it was like a vital life lifeline for a lot of people because, you know, my mum was a nurse and she works late at nights and works all nights. And we were four kids, you know, very, very young. And without come, having Auntie Carmen and Auntie Beulah and all these different aunties coming to look after us, you know, we wouldn't have had anyone there. So, yeah, it was vital having that connection. That's amazing. Um, also, I know that you were very um, interested in photography when you were younger as well. And you did go out and, uh, and there was a moment where I read about the first time that you were scared, um, where you got caught up, um, didn't you, in some troubles in Brixton. And that's when you said that you, the first time that you felt that you had to be a little bit careful. One of my next questions is um, what scares you the most? You know, what's your, what are you scared of, essentially? I guess I'm scared of the most right now um, in this moment is I'm scared of 
this kind of leaning towards people's darker sides and the darker side of nature. And we see that in so many ways. We see that in racism, sexism, and homophobia. And, you know, we've all got these sides to ourselves, but we all try to be better people and we all try to be bigger and better people. And that right now it just feels like it's easy for people to slide into a bit of gentle racism because things are difficult for them to understand or unfamiliar. And, you know, and I think that, that, that I, I'm scared of that kind of becoming like a normal, response to things oh I don't understand it and I don't understand these people therefore I don't like them because I think in England we got to a place that we were much more open and much more liberal and I I feel like over the last few years that's really been closing down um and that that doesn't bode well for us and doesn't bode well for the country and doesn't bode well for people like me in, in in my community why do you think that is the case why do you think over the last few years it has closed down I mean I think there's just been a very slow um, move towards the right, which isn't really the problem because, you know, people are allowed to have left-wing politics and right-wing politics. But then you've seen this kind of really extreme element kind of popping up and in their head. And, you know, I think at the moment Brexit happened, literally the next day, me and my friends, a lot of us were saying the atmosphere just changed. It gave power to a certain kind of small percentage of people who don't like us and don't like people like me. And, and I feel that that's just been building and building and building. Um, you know, the other thing I'm scared of is a really horrible conspiracy theory that people, you know, conspiracy theories really, I mean, we kind of laughed them off before, but I've had sensible people, bright, intelligent people, friends of mine, repeating things that they've seen on Facebook or places like that and believing it. And I'm like, what is happening? What's going on? And so that that scares me too, that people um, can basically just not think, people are getting their information and their news and their stuff from, from Facebook and and. Whereas a lot of stuff is not real and not, it's made up. It's been proven to be not real and proven to be made up. Because if everybody gets into a conspiracy mentality, you can never win. Oh, you don't know because you don't know, you know. And, and I think that's quite what scares me. I mean, I hope, you know, I don't think that, that my politics should be the politics that runs the world, but I think that veering towards extreme from one side to the other is really not good for us. It doesn't bode well. When were you at your most happiest? Because uh, sometimes it's from the book when I was reading, it seemed like when you visited Jamaica, you felt very at home and and I could feel, feel you almost smiling as you wrote that. But I wondered when you were at your happiest in your life to date so far. Wow. I mean, I think that um, happiness is a kind of a peak. I aim for contentment. You know, I aim for like just to kind of that 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 line, that, that barometer just keeps on going up and up and up uh, because you have moments of supreme happiness and then you have moments of supreme ha- sadness and that can happen in one week. So I always kind of aim for general contentment. I mean, I think right now in my life, I'm probably the happiest and most stable that I've ever been. But if I look back, um, I remember um, the first time Skunk and Nancy did a rehearsal and we all just looked at each other and just started laughing and smiling because we just knew we had it. There was a chemistry there and a feeling there and a sparkle on the air, like crackling. And we just started laughing because we sounded so good within 30 or 40 seconds of playing together. And after all of the things that we've been through to get to that point, I was like, this is it. This is the sound. Um, I would also say 
in Jamaica when my grandma used to make me coconut drops, which is molasses, coconuts cut into little cubes and covered in molasses and left to set. That is probably the most, one of the most delicious things that you will ever put in your mouth. I mean, the flavour, you know, it's the, the, the ginger and the coconut and the molasses together. If you're a kid and you're in Jamaica and you're eating these homemade sweets, it was just a brand new flavour of sweets that I've never tasted. Up to, up until then, it was like blackjacks and refreshers and like Watsits and Quavers. <laughs> it was like a whole other, whole other type of experience. Uh, and, if I, and if I were to say a third one, I would say, yeah, just, I think just how I feel now, you know, I'm, this is the best relationship I've ever been in and it feels really good and really heartwarming. And after all of the, the kind of, I won't call them mistakes because I don't think relationships are mistakes, they're just learning curves. Um, I think it's, um, it's good to finally find myself in that position. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, they sound like happy memories. And this will feed really nicely into the next question, which is when did you most feel like you? And I wondered if that's when um, you started really getting interested in fashion when you were younger and you suddenly, in the book, it felt like you really found your identity and you were striding out. And Yeah, I mean, I think just before that, actually, I think you're right, but just before that, the moment I really felt that I was me was when I shaved my head for the first time. Um, I had my friend David Bromfield, his name is, and he was going up with my really good friend, my best friend, Carl Walker, and he has some clippers, and I was like, shave it all off, and he wouldn't do it, but he kept doing lower and lower and lower. And then I went to the barbers, and they um, cut my hair down to a certain point. You know, they were like, don't don't cut it too short. Don't cut it too short. You have to leave something for the man then. You know, like basically men aren't going to be attracted to me if I don't, if I shave it off. And then I got some clippers of myself and I shaved it all off and looked in the mirror and I was like, there you are, finally. It's like when you're kind of trying out different haircuts and you finally get the haircut that you know, you know, you're going to have for the rest of your life in some shape or form. And I just, I just felt a definite sense of, it sounds a bit cheesy to say it, but a definite sense of empowerment. I felt instantly stronger and instantly beautiful, which was the first time in my life I really felt beautiful and I looked great. Um, so that's when I felt the most me was getting rid of the getting rid of the hair. Will it ever come back? I know it came back a little bit for a while, didn't it? But it, it will it ever come back or? Yeah. Not not in a way that I have to do anything to it. Not in a kind of you know, putting in some kind of product or having to get it cut or no, I'm just, those days are over. I mean, I let it grow because what's really lovely about having a shaved head, if you, when you let it grow like over a week and then you shave it and it comes off in rolls, that's really fun. And you get a nice, even clean haircut if you do it that way. Um, so yeah, I do, I do that sometimes for fun. If I'm not going to see anyone, I'll just let it grow a bit and get a mini afro and then enjoy shaving all again. <laughs> nice. Go through the process again. It must be quite cathartic, quite nice. Yeah, it's cleansing. It's, it is. Yeah. I bet. It's funny when you look back at photos of, of your life, isn't it? Because you can really see in your eyes, you know yourself so well. You can see when you're happy. You can see when you're thriving. You can see what you're wearing. And it's, it's fascinating how an appearance tells so much, doesn't it? And you must have studied that in your fashion and, and everything, you know, throughout your life. Yeah. Do you know, do you know the thing is that, that you can really see when you get it right and you can really feel when you step out the door and you've got it so wrong. And I still have days like that when I step outside my door and I'm, you know, walking to the tube station. I'm like, what am I wearing today? Because <laughs> especially if I get dressed in a rush, 
because I got lots of weird clothes and sometimes I'm just, got, I get it all wrong still. But that's okay, you know, it's just fun. Just got to style it out for the rest of the day and pretend you meant to look like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, do you know, I think that in my early days of being in my band before Scott Canetzi, I was in a band called Mama Wild that I created. Um, there was a lot of trial and error. Um, and a lot of that trial and error was trying to kind of look like a rock star, try to look like a, you know, one of the Ramones or something like that. And it just didn't work on me because I was always a black girl with no shape, with a shaven head. So it always looked a bit kind of juxtaposition on me. So when I stopped worrying about what trying to fit in and starting wearing my own fashion and started to be myself, that's when I got more comfortable with my, my fashion sense and my look. But when you're raised as a kind of good Christian girl who's got to wear perfectly ironed, perfectly pleated crepe dresses, and you get to 14 and you're like, oh, I'm not wearing this anymore. Oh, what do I look like? I look like a Stepford wife. I think I looked like a Stepford wife till I was about 14 and then I was, then I was done. You were just talking about your best friend who shaved your head um, when you were younger. Is that still your best friend? Who, who is your best friend, Skin? Um, my first best friend, my longest best friend, is my friend Carl Walker, who I, we just, we just stuck together like glue when we were teenagers up until about 16. Um, and so that's my, I have lots of different types of best friends for different reasons. So, so she's, um, you know, my first kind of really good friend, you know. Um, I have no sisters, so I was all, I always got very close to women because not having any sisters is, you feel like you're missing something. And so your female friends just become like sisters. And so I have lots of very, I've got about five people that I'm very close to and very close to my manager, Lee, who's been the only uh, manager I've had and we're very close and she knows me inside out you know all my good sides and my bad sides and um and that's that's a best friend in a kind of different way in a more protective way and I got another best friend Rochelle who lives in California now and we kind of grew up together as kind of clubbers ravers um and I think that you know your partner has to really kind of be your best friend too because that's a person that you really spend so much time with especially in lockdown I mean I think lockdown has been a real test of a relationship you know like do you get to that point where you really don't want to see each other or you know how do you create each other's because you I love my personal space and so how do you create your personal space within a relationship if you're in the same building for four months you know and do you ever get bored of that person? I think so that, I think a lot of people are, I'm having conversations with other friends and a lot of people are like, wow, you know, we really didn't get on. This was the end of the relationship because I realised after two months of being in lockdown that, you know, we're not, as, we're not the same people <laughs> at all. And some other people, you know, like me, you know, um, got engaged and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's been a very strong test of relationship lockdown. It really did, it was quite an eye-opener. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. I had no idea. That's wicked. Lovely news. So oh, nice. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> you're welcome. You know what? I, you know what? I think you're the first I've told. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Um, I was going to ask you, um, we were talking about, you know, when you were talking about living with people and how you like your personal space and everything. It seems a bit negative, but it's always quite interesting to ask people what their worst quality is that they think. Because we always see that the pros, you know, we always see the brilliant stuff. Well, I mean, my worst qualities are restlessness. Like, I'm someone who gets up, gets to, you know, I've got, a, I'm a 
very FAD, fine attention to detail. So I'll sit down, see something, and I have to fix it then and then, then and there. Like, I'm... One of the things about me is I don't leave things till later. I, I'm like a do-it-now person. So I'm constantly getting up to do something and driving people crazy. It's like, why don't you just sit down and chill and just, you know, relax? Um, so I'm a bit of a doer and a bit of a project person. So I think my restlessness can be very irritating around people who are just trying to chill and relax, you know, because I've always, I'm a busybody. I'm always messing about with something in my house and there's always something I've got to do. And what's really bad about it is I will be doing five things at once. So I'll be doing something in the kitchen, think of something else, go to another part of the house, start another project, go to that, and then go back to the kitchen because, oh, I didn't finish doing that. And so finish that. And so there'll be four piles of mess all around the house with things that I'm in the process of, of getting done and fixing. But I do do them. I don't leave things happening and I do get things done. So that's the positive side of it. You know, I'm someone who will decide to put shelf up and get that shelf up and get it there and have it done. You know, I'm a finish and start kind of, mentality um and I'm not very messy so being tidy drives people crazy sometimes yeah okay so when you're multitasking you are one of these people that if you've got your laptop open you've got like six different windows all going at the same time and jumping between all of them yeah uh, but except I'm really really tech I'm a tech person so I'm the one who scrolls and has a different page, which nobody else seems to use on their Mac. Nobody ever seems to use that, that thing where you can scroll and have a different page and a different thing open on each page. So I'll have 10 pages open and I'll just scroll between them all. And it's so easy. I'm like, why would you have a thousand windows open? Like my other half has a thousand windows open on one page and it drives me crazy. I'm like, oh. God, and it's opening, going behind the page. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Just scroll side to side. But hey, that's just me. <laughs> you see how annoying that is now? You can feel the annoyance, can't you? Um, I suppose that's uh, with the technology that's really helped, obviously, with your DJing career as well. And the next question we're going to ask you is if this is going to be hard for you, because I know there's so many... I know you're a massive fan of, like, Sister Rosetta Thorpe and, like, and techno and, and rock me and all sorts... But is there one piece of art or music that you could focus in on and say, that's my that's the one that's taken my breath away? Um, the first record I ever bought was a Nina Simone record, and it was a 10-inch, and I didn't know who she was. I bought it because my mate was selling, selling them off the back of a lorry in Brixton Market, and I just bought one to help him out. Um, and I didn't get to play it for months because it was vinyl, and I wasn't allowed in the room in the house that where the vinyl player was, where the record player was. And one day my mum went out and left the front door open. You know, Jamaicans have this front door, front room in their house, which they keep perfectly tidy. And, and in case, I mean, it's like they think the, tea, the queen's going to come around for tea or something. So we had one in our house with this, the, you know, the front room and it had the, the, the record players in there and everything had beautiful lace curtains and lace, like, placemats and stuff on there you know it was a beautiful room and I sneaked in one night when my mum forgot to lock it I had a tv in there as well and um I played this Nina Simone record and it blew my mind because I didn't know what to expect I didn't know if it was jazz or reggae and and it was a real eye-opener for me because she played piano and she played piano incredibly well I mean really beautiful and I learned all the notes on piano that she was singing and I'd sing along 
you know, to all the notes and piano. And I think that was really kind of a musical thing that clicked in my head. So, yeah, I would say that was the first thing that blew my mind was this Nina Simone record. And I still have it. I still have it. Um, it's my prized possession because it was a release. It was a British release and she didn't actually sell very many of, many of them. So now it's quite um, the, the original copy, the first, the, first, the first edition is quite valuable. I'm sure. I'm sure. Do you remember what um, song it was? Was it an EP or was it just? It, just was, a... an, it was an EP. It was 10 inch and it had um, My Baby Still Cares For Me. It had I Love You Porky. It had Love Me Leave Me and it had uh, Little Girl Blue. So, I mean, four incredible songs, right? I mean, out of all the things, from the early days of Nina Simone, those are four of the best songs that she ever did. Oh, nice. Well, we're going to put together like a playlist of everyone's um, answers for that question as well. So I'll, I'll add those in. I was reading in your book that you learned violin, right? Yeah, I played classical violin for... Six years, six years, yeah. Yeah, and, and you said it was a really good, um, an excellent kind of... You wanted to play, what was it, guitar, wasn't it? Yeah, I wanted I wanted to play piano. I was desperate to learn how to play piano, but everyone's parents make the kids list piano as their first instrument that they want to learn. So I was too late putting my name down for piano, and they said, oh, you can have violin. And I so I did violin, and the first... Three years, I mean, it was it was horrific. It was a horrific noise, let's be honest. It was it was literally a cat being skinned alive. But no one ever complained in my my family. And and then after three years, I got really quite good. So they had this chamber choir, chamber orchestra, because my school had a big orchestra, and there was a chamber orchestra at the front. So I got I was the main soloist for the orchestra. So I had sat at the front with the best cellist, the best viola player, the best violin player and the best flute player. And there were four of us and we got all the solos. So thinking about it, it must have been quite good. Um, and I, then I got to a point where I really loved playing it, but I, I couldn't afford to buy the instrument and my instrument had to be given to somebody in the first year. So that was the, um, that was the end of it. But I think the wonderful thing about it is that I learned an instrument that um, had no frets. So you had to learn how to be in tune by, by basically just trial and error and hitting your fingers in the right place on the, on the, the fretboard. And so um, that gave me a very good ear, I would say. It learned me how to kind of sing in tune. I think it was the first thing that, learned, that I learned that helped me as a singer and to sing in tune was having a playing an instrument right by your ear that had to be in tune. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've always um, really admired, you know, when, when, you've, uh, when you play your live shows with Skunk and Nancy, when you do the walkout on people's hands, A, the trust, I love that trust you have in your crowd, <laughs> but also the, uh, the ability to not drop a note while you're doing it. If people haven't seen us listening to the podcast, there's loads of um, footage on YouTube, isn't there, of you literally walking out on people's yeah. hands while singing with like a, a wireless mic. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing that. I've been doing that since the early. I mean, other people are doing it now. I won't mention it, <laughs> but yeah, that's one of the first. That's one of the first things that um, that was just a really fun thing to do. I mean, you've you've achieved so much um, when you look back at your. Um, discography and all the gigs that you've played and everything that you, you've achieved across the board, um, headlining Glastonbury, um, being an incredible DJ, writing a book, all these things. But what's your ambition? Um, 
yeah, because I'm, um, I've done a couple of movies and acting was really, really fun, especially um, I seem to be asked to do the weirder side of it, you know, sci-fi and being dressed in loads of makeup and looking really weird was really fun. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in doing things that are completely different than, than I've known for, like putting me in difficult situations and challenging situations. Um, I've been asked to do a lot of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, some documentary stuff, which I think would be great. Um, so yeah, I like the idea of doing a little bit more serious, uh, TV and radio stuff. Yeah. Oh, nice. If we could uh, move on to the next question now, I'm going to just ask you this one, which has quickly become one of my favorite questions of the podcast, which is if you have any recurring dreams and if you do, if you'd be willing to share them with us. Wow. Yeah. I've had a few recurring dreams. Um, uh, my my, I had a lot when I was a teenager, and one of them would be like it's like, it's quite typical. Maybe you can get it analysed, but I was I would climb to the top of a pole, and I'd be balancing at this pole like nine meters in the air, and I'd be balancing one foot, feeling like feeling like I was about to fall. Um, and apparently, if you do fall in your dream, that's really bad. I think you're about to die or something. But so that was one I used to have. I used to have a lot of kaleidoscope dreams where there was weird colours and shapes, and that had a lot of creative, colourful kaleidoscope dreams. And then I, I tend to have dreams about what I want to do next. So before Skunk and Nancy, I used to have this recurring dream where I was on stage and I had a microphone and I was just like clenching onto the microphone with both hands, screaming into it with full force at the front of the stage. And that was years before I actually did that. But that was the image that I was chasing before I was in the band that I was trying to get to. Um, and I tend to have dreams which are things I want to do. So it's almost kind of like imagining what it would be like or working out how I would do it before I get to do it. I have a lot of forecast type of things, you know, like, um, like just things, places I want to be and things I want to do. My dreams tend to be like manifestations of of what I'm thinking about, what I want to do next. That's fascinating. So you kind of almost have a premonition of what needs to happen, and you and you really did you tune into that when you were younger, quite early on? Did you listen to that? Yeah, all the time, all the time. When I was, uh, I, I studied interior architecture, and I would try and replicate those kaleidoscope colours in, in my designs. Um, and I would try and... Because I worked out a long time ago that the best way to remember your dream was to go over it again before you open your eyes and before you move. And then I read a book years later that said exactly the same thing. So if you want to remember a dream, you wake up and while you're still half asleep and half waking up, when you begin to be kind of consciously slightly awake... You go over the dream in your head um, and going over that dream kind of makes it be in your real alive awake memory. And, and I used to do that as a child. And so I was very good at remembering my dreams. Very, very good at not telling any of them to anybody, you know. But um, I guess I, I, yeah, I always used to imagine what things would be like and then I dream about it and I make it happen. With the, because um, you studied interior design, didn't you? That's when you were talking about architecture a moment or so ago as well. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you still um, pull all that colour into your home now? Is, is the home very important to you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think as a touring musician, you have two sides to where you sleep, you know. You have houses and you have homes. And, you know, certain places I've been in, my, my, when I'm in London, that feels like a house. And when I'm in Ibiza, it feels much more of a home. I have a house in Ibiza because I've had this house for a very, very long time. So 
I've had, I've had, I have very long memories here um, where I don't have very long memories in, in anywhere else apart from childhood memories. So there's a difference there. I mean, um, actually, yeah, I'm always designing and always building and always adding new things and being directly involved in that. Yeah, I, lo I love it. I still love it. And I, I, I get involved in that very heavily in my own, my own houses. If you could go back and give any advice to you, your younger self, what that would be. I mean, it sounds like you've been listening and sort of so in tune with yourself from quite an early age, but is there anything that you would... And you said earlier on, you know, mistakes are mistakes and they're never... You know, you should never look back on them as the wrong turn, but... I, I think... I think... Um, I, you know, going back, I don't think I'd change much because I think that one of the things you do have to do when you're young is that you have a certain level of energy you have when you're young that you just don't have. Uh, when you're older and that's just how life is so I always say like you know do it while you're young start it while you're young if whatever you want to do in life start it when you're young because you need to put so much hours in and so much energy and so much hard work and you can do those as a 16 17 18 19 20 25 year old and then it starts to get harder and harder the older you get although I think the older you get you get much more um enthusiastic about things like I find myself very excited about things and very much in a kind of headspace of like yeah I know I can do that I can do that I'm gonna go for it I'm just gonna do it whereas when um I was younger I probably say to myself don't be so insecure I mean when I was younger I would just be bloody-minded and just do for do it and just go for it but I felt I didn't have any confidence about anything and I felt very shy, but I would just put myself in positions of saying yes and then not being able to get out of it and then doing it and succeeding and thinking, okay, well, I've done that now. But it was really nerve-wracking. Um, so, I mean, I think that um, probably my advice would now, I would probably say to myself, oh, don't worry about the degree. Just go and do get into music, you know? I didn't... Uh, sign a record deal, deal till I was 26 years old. I just looked a lot younger. Um, and I could, I could probably say, you know, I could have just gone for it at 18 years old, you know, and not spent eight years do, studying something that I love and I still love, but doesn't necessarily, didn't necessarily need to study for what I wanted to do with my life. It sounded like you were very independent at a young age. You, you were, you ironed your own clothes and you, you were all left to do your own thing and, and you went off and got your Saturday jobs. Uh, was it BHS you worked on Oxford, Oxford Street? or Woolworths, BHS, Oxford Street, B&Q, yeah. which was my favourite, Tyrac, <laughs> yeah. Mothercare. Right. Yeah. Oh, God, Tyrac was the worst place to work. Oh, my God, that was the most boring job I ever heard. Sorry, people who work at Tyrac, I'm sorry, but, you know, you know what I'm saying. Um, but, yeah, I, I, do you know what it is? It's, that's just upbringing. That's Jamaican parents, man. That's cultural. It's like, yeah, get out and do it. You know, I'm not going to sit here doing everything for you. So, you know, if I wanted money, I had to go and earn it. And I had to go and find a way to earn it because my mum didn't have loads of money to give me. So it was down to me. And, and that's something you realise at an early age that, you know, if you want things, you have to go and get a job and buy them. <laughs> you know, nobody, I, I, there was nobody that was going to give me money to buy anything. So that was very, I knew that like 12, 13, that, you know, I, that's when I started sort of looking for work and getting side jobs and stuff like that. And, and, and it was fun. It was really liberating when you, earn money at a young age and then you go off and buy stuff for yourself. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do. 
I think I had a paper round as well. Paper rounds are great. Uh, we are down to our last um, last question, Skin. And this is, uh, what is your greatest achievement to date? I've been asked to add that on by a few guests. <laughs> well, I mean, I think my greatest achievement to date is to still be the lead singer of a uh, fairly successful rock band. My greatest achievement, I think, is I deliberate, I left my interior design job to become a singer. And I think my achievement is to still, at the age that I am now, having a music career and only doing that and being able to do what I want to do every day of my life. I think it's a very difficult thing to really just be earning your money from the thing that you love um, and being able to do it all of the time and only doing things that are kind of connected to that in choosing my own itinerary and choosing my own schedule. I think that's quite a privilege. Um, I mean, a lot of bands from the 90s are not in that position and had to do other things. And and so um, it's quite an honour and privilege, really, to just be in this position where I'm still at least single skunk and NC. I'm still DJing and I'm doing all these other things. And, um, you know, I'm living the life that I wanted to, which is a self-employed kind of self, you know, um, owned and, and organising everything myself with my team. I mean, that's a wonderful, privileged position to be in. So I would say that's the biggest success rather than, one single thing because you know little things go up and down but you know my career is my career and I'm still here yeah for sure so good I'm so pleased you are <laughs> I really am uh, what's that well, I know it's really hard to say like with what's going on now I know you you like me are a massive supporter of saving the grassroots venues um, in this country and indeed yeah, across the world absolutely essential stuff um What's next on the horizon for you musically? Can you share anything? Well, yeah, we don't really know, to be honest, because um, I'm doing a lot of things, new projects and stuff that I'm doing via internet and stuff like that. But it's being, a, being on stage, there's nothing else like it. You know, streaming sucks. <laughs> you know, streaming a gig sucks. It just I've, DJing streaming, it sucks even harder. You know, I've watched loads of them and I'm like, I'm not getting anything from this, you know. So... Um, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to being in a venue with lots of people screaming and going crazy. I mean, I've seen some of the socially distanced venues and some of the socially distanced gigs going along. I think it suits quieter music and suits more acoustic and more chilled performers. It doesn't really suit rock gigs, you know, like people smashed together and moshing. It doesn't support that, you know, it's... It's much more for an all. It works for maybe an audio, older audience who would, you know, they'd be sitting inside. They can sit outside. I mean, that's great. Um, but you know what I do, DJing and dancing. You know, it's like it, it kind of doesn't really work. So um, I'm kind of treading water, watching this space. Um, I think preparing for that not to happen for a long time, and also looking forward to that happening quite soon so I think right now you've it's a situation of having lots of fingers in different pies and see which one works um because nobody know nobody knows really yeah yeah it's interesting it's so, so interesting to see how it's going to play out isn't it what the year no one predicted yeah <laughs> it's absolutely mental it, nobody would have thought I mean I, I think the one thing that I'm going to get from it is that thank god I love technology and I'm into technology because um, I think if you're not and you've had to do podcasts and Zooms and live streams and all of this and learn all this technology and you're not suited for it, I think that's a bit, that's that's not great. So 
Um, I think what's wonderful about it is the DIYness of it, you know, being new careers and having to do it yourself. I think that's going to give a lot of pe- people a lot of power and a lot of strength overall over how they create and how they come across. Yeah, man. It's going to be an interesting 12 months ahead, isn't it? And all the music that comes out of it as well. Pretty fascinated to see where that comes. Um, Skin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Your book, um, which I'm halfway through and I can't wait to read the rest of it, It Takes Blood and Guts, is out at the end of this month, September 24th. Um, People can get a copy of that. But um, I really appreciate your time. It's lovely to catch up with you next time, hopefully in person. Thank you. Skin. I love talking to her. Before I've been um, lucky enough to be in studios with her discussing the music of Skunk and Nancy, who I grew up with, but so great to ask some deeper questions as she's led such a fascinating life. And the thing I love about her is she has such a clear, focused take on the world. Absolutely brilliant. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe so you don't miss any more. And if you were listening on Apple, I'd be so very grateful for a rating if you have the time and you enjoyed it as well, of course. Thank you so much for all the great feedback so far. Actually, while we're talking of feedback, next week will be the final episode in this run. It's gone so quick, but we will be back for Series 2 in the not-too-distant future. And with Series 2 comes a new set of 11 questions. So if there are any that you think uh, you would like to hear answered by my upcoming coffee-drinking cohorts, then please do fire them over either via Twitter, I'm simply at Danielle Perry on there, or we can um, have a dedicated email address that we've done for this very purpose. 11s is questions at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. So until next week, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.